pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone, Dominic here. Before we begin, a quick note about chronology. The story I am about to tell you took place sometime during the reign of Seti I. Unfortunately, we don't have specific dates. The king's records from Egypt and Canaan present a fairly detailed picture of the events, what Seti did, where he went, and so forth. Alas, the timing and order remains unclear. Different scholars present different itineraries for Seti's campaigns and battles. With that in mind, the story I am sharing might have taken place in a single grand campaign, or these episodes may have occurred at different times. We really can't say for sure, so this is my version, but there are alternatives. If you are interested, you can find more details in the references for this episode. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 182, The Battle for Kadesh, aka Catching Up with the Kadeshians. Today, King Seti I launches another military endeavour. Going north, Pharaoh and his troops wage war on distant cities and kingdoms. In the process, they bring a famous town into their empire. Kadesh, on the Orontes River, is a prominent site in modern Syria, and it is a legendary battlefield of the Late Bronze Age. Today, we explore Seti's campaign to this region. This episode comes to you on behalf of Luis from New York and Justine from Exeter. These fine folks made donations to the podcast, for which I am most grateful. Also, thank you to Donald, who joined the Patreon as a hereditary noble. Folks, you are all most generous. May the great goddess Hathor, Lady of Byblos, and Montu, Lord of Waset, protect your endeavours and bring victory to your pursuits. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us march once again to war. The year was unknown, somewhere around 1300 BCE. The land of Egypt basked in the glory of Men Ma'at-Ra, the pharaoh Seti I. In his early to mid-thirties, Seti was now a well-established ruler. He and his followers had achieved military victories and started great building projects. Now, it was time for another expedition. In the first year of his reign, Seti had visited the Sinai Peninsula and southern Canaan. He had fought battles against nomads and cities in this region, and he had made his appearance as the new overlord of the land. Seti's first campaign was kind of a glorified tour or raid. He wasn't facing serious opposition, 
more like scattered dissidents and rebels. Still, the king had proclaimed his victory loudly, carving great battle scenes on the wall of Karnak Temple. A short time later, maybe a year or two, Seti returned to Canaan. The pharaoh's army, his troops and chariots, were ready to go further. This time, they would face a proper battle. Seti went forth from Egypt early in his reign. He does not record his route, but I think it's a fair bet that the pharaoh and his troops set sail from the eastern Nile Delta. They may have boarded ships at the great fortress of Charu. Then, sailing along the coast, they may have gone past the Sinai and north into Canaan and Lebanon. Seti and his troops would sail rapidly to a place like Gaza, Tyre, Sidon, or Byblos. These towns along the Canaanite and Lebanese coast were important bastions of Egyptian authority. Most likely, they sailed to one of these locations, and then marched inland. Having arrived in Canaan, Seti's first stop was a land called Yanoam. Yanoam, or Inuamu in Egyptian, was a region and a town. The exact location of Yanoam is unknown, but this city was probably somewhere near the Jordan River Valley or the Sea of Galilee. This was a relatively fertile region, with good access to water, and probably a lot of trading routes crossing from the east to west and north to south. Yanoam was moderately prosperous country. It wasn't a great military power, but it definitely had some wealth. The Egyptians were well familiar with Yanoam. Back in the 18th dynasty, about 170 years before Seti, the pharaoh Tutmose III had subjugated this area. Tutmose captured prisoners and took gold, silver, gems, ornamental vessels, and wood from Yanoam. Again, that indicates the region's prosperity. They probably had access to trade, maybe going up and down the Jordan River. Even if Yanoam was not a major political force, they had wealth, and the pharaohs valued that. So Tutmose III had subjugated Yanoam over a century earlier. Since then, the city only shows up a few times in the Egyptian sources. Apparently, there was a rebellion at Yanoam during the reign of Akhenaten. The city is referenced in the Amana Letters, that collection of messages from Egypt's diplomatic archive. According to one letter, the Lord of Yanoam had been involved in a series of uprisings that swept through this region. We don't have time to deep dive into that, but long story short, about 50 years before Seti I, cities in Canaan were briefly engulfed in disputes, infighting, and general chaos. Yanoam, apparently, was involved in those events. That being said, Yanoam wasn't top tier as a political or military force. Other cities like Byblos, Kadesh, Tyre, and Amaru were far more important and active. So whatever the Yanoamites were doing, they were on the periphery of larger centres. Maybe the Egyptians weren't too concerned with this kingdom, and it's entirely possible that Yanoam was one of those back-and-forth cities, friendly one day, hostile the next, then back to friendly, depending on circumstances. We can only speculate on the evidence that is currently available. Hopefully, future archaeology will locate Yanoam itself 
and give us a better understanding. Anyway, Yanoam was a town and region somewhere near the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. Officially, it was part of the Egyptian Empire, although there had been hiccups. Now, Seti I came to Yanoam in force. This brings us to the first of our great battle scenes. On the walls of Karnak Temple, we find Seti at war. The pharaoh is attacking Yanoam directly. Seti appears in his chariot. He is much larger than his foes, because he is the most important. And Seti is going full tilt on the enemy. The king stands with one foot planted firmly in the chariot cart. The other foot, Seti has lifted over the rim of the cart, and he seems to be balancing himself on the yoke that connects the chariot to his horses. In other words, Seti has hooked one leg over the edge of his chariot, providing better stability to fight. As he balances himself, the king is raising his bow. Seti looses arrows into the enemy, bringing them down with his effective arm. Naturally, Seti's aim is true, his pull is strong, and the arrows are devastating. All about him, the Yanoamites tumble in confusion, and Seti's arrows pierce their bodies. The king stands alone, with no driver or assistant. In theory, Seti should be holding onto the reins, steering the horses through the melee. But he can't do that, he is too busy loosing arrows. To deal with this, the artists show Seti tying the reins around his belt. It seems that the king is steering the chariot with his hips. That raises all sorts of questions about Seti's flexibility, his ability to shimmy and thrust. But assuming that Seti's hips don't lie, the king's moves brought him victory. The enemy are a fascinating group. For one thing, there are foot soldiers, infantry, and chariots, cavalry. Apparently the town of Yanoam was prosperous enough to support horses and equipment for elite chariot warriors. The charioteers are well equipped, with helmets, rectangular shields, and spears. The foot soldiers are a mixed bunch, but some of them also carry shields. So the Yanoamite army appears to be well equipped. Hypothetically, they could have been an effective force in the region. The Egyptian artists show the Yanoamites in a stereotypical form. The soldiers all look identical. They wear long robes, long hair, and beards. This is a classic Egyptian version of Syrians, quote-unquote. They tend to appear as a homogenous group. That being said, the artists do throw in fun details and little bits of personality. The enemy appears in two age groups. One group are younger, with long hair and white headbands or fillets marking them out. The second group is older. These soldiers have no hair, they are bald, and they do not wear headbands. The significance of that is unclear. Perhaps Seti is showing the wretchedness of his enemy. The leaders of Yanoam were so weak, so poor, that they couldn't support a young, vigorous army. The Yanoamites had to send the elderly to fight alongside the youths. That's just speculative. The best we can say is that Seti shows his enemy as a varied group. Both the elderly and the youthful come out to fight. Nevertheless, their experience and their vigour are useless. Egypt's pharaoh triumphs over Yanoam, and his arrows bring all of them down. As the king charges forward, we get some wonderful details in the fray. 
Again, the Yanoamites have sent forth their infantry and chariots. That suggests a prosperous city. They should be an effective fighting force. Nevertheless, the Egyptian assault routs them utterly. The infantry tumble over one another and get tangled in the horses' hooves. The charioteers are not charging against Seti, they are fleeing from him. Clearly, the enemy cannot resist the pharaoh's power, or the strength of his horses. The Yanoamites run with their heads down, cowering in terror. One excellent detail stands out. In the midst of the scene, we see a horse galloping away from the battle. It seems to have come loose from a chariot. Then again, maybe somebody has cut it loose. On the horse's back, a Yanoamite soldier appears. He has jumped on top of the animal and now rides it in terror, fleeing before the onslaught. It's a lovely feature that the artists have rendered carefully. Did it actually happen? Maybe. You can imagine a warrior losing heart in defeat and finding a wayward horse. He grabs the mane, leaps up, and starts riding for his life. Back to the city, back to safety. On the far left, we see Yanoam itself. The town stands atop a hill with a river on either side. Apparently, Yanoam is built at a place where two rivers meet. Or it has a moat, an artificial ditch filled with water. At any rate, Yanoam is a defensible position. The town has high walls and towers, kind of like a castle. Atop those walls, the people of Yanoam stand to watch the battle. There are men and women, and they raise their hands towards the fray. This gesture, two hands raised before you, is actually a hieroglyph. The hieroglyph Hesi, or praise. It indicates the people's awe, and their submission before Seti. Seeing the army routed, the people of Yanoam beg for Pharaoh's mercy. Finally, the artists throw in one more detail. Just below Yanoam, at the base of the hill, there is a forest. A stand of trees, maybe conifers, cluster near the town. Amid those trees, we can see people. Yanoamite troops are hiding in the woods, their heads poking out. Apparently, these troops are young men, they all have the long hair and white headbands. That might be significant, suggesting that the Yanoamites are cowards, abandoning their elders to die. Or it could be a coincidence with no real meaning. Still, the point is clear. Yanoam's soldiers are so afraid that they flee into the woods. Amusingly, the Egyptian artists show some of these men from the front. There are five soldiers amidst the trees. Three of them appear in the standard side-on or profile form, but two soldiers look out, directly at the viewer. It's an unusual approach, and we don't see that often in Egyptian art. But these little dudes, looking out of the woods, make eye contact with those who view Seti's image. Again, it's an excellent detail. I wonder why they did that. So, Seti I and his army came to Yanoam. On the walls of Karnak Temple, we see the battle unfolding. The king himself appears alone, no troops behind him. But the battle rages, and the Yanoamites fall. Eventually, the city would be taken. Seti's assault on Yanoam and its territories may have been a brutal, bloody affair. Presumably, the city itself surrendered or fell to a siege. At this point, King Seti was fully in command of Canaan. 
all the way from the Sinai to the Sea of Galilee. Any dissent from local cities or tribes had been effectively crushed. Now, the pharaoh's flanks were secure. He could move further north. After the break, Seti's march continues. The king enters Lebanon to meet with its people. And then he goes further. An attack into lands far north of Canaan. In a moment, we will explore the pharaoh's attack on Kadesh. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. The year was 1300 BCE, give or take. The chronology is uncertain. Scholars debate the nuances. What we do know is that Egypt's pharaoh, Seti I, was in the midst of a campaign. The king had led a military expedition to the north, the lands of Canaan. He had won a victory at Yanoam. Now he was moving on. The artistic scene showing Seti at Yanoam appears on the northern wall of Karnak Temple. It is at the eastern edge of this building, roughly correlating with its actual location, north and east of Egypt. If you go around the corner of this wall, to the eastern side of the building, you will find the next episode in Seti's northern march. This time, the king seems to have entered Lebanon. In a massive scene, we find Seti standing before a forest. Apparently, this is the land of Hanem, or Hanam, which might be in the foothills of Lebanon. It seems that following his campaign to Yanoam, around Galilee and Jordan, Seti moved north and west. He entered the forested hills near the Mediterranean coast. And fresh from his victory over Yanoam, the pharaoh came to subjugate the locals. Surprisingly, the next scene is far less violent than the Yanoam one. In fact, it's downright peaceful. In Lebanon, Seti does not ride his chariot, raging against the enemy hordes. Instead, we find him standing peacefully next to his chariot. The king has dismounted, stepping off the war cart, to meet with the Lebanese locals. Seti wears his blue crown, and he clutches a bow and arrow, but he is not firing at his enemies. Instead, he extends one hand to greet the people before him. To the left of Seti, we see a mighty forest. A great stand of trees, rising high, appears before the king. These may be the conifer trees that once dominated Lebanon. Lebanese trees are renowned for their high-quality wood, called cedar. These grew in thick forests all across the region. And the Egyptians valued cedar wood as a strong, flexible timber. By the time Seti came to Lebanon, traders had carried wood from this region down to Egypt for over a thousand years. In fact, famous rulers like Khufu of the Great Pyramid had commissioned ships out of Lebanese cedar, and Egyptian temples had shrines, doors, and flagpoles made of this timber. 
the cedar trees of Lebanon were extremely valuable. Seti, well, he wanted that for himself. Having subjugated Yenoam and asserted his authority in the region, Seti came to the foothills. Here, we see him gathering chieftains from local communities. Seti stands before the Lebanese forest. Amid the trees, a group of men gather in front of the king. They wear similar clothes to the Yenoamites, long robes and beards, and the young men have long hair tied up with a headband. Apparently, the Egyptian artists considered the Lebanese and the Yenoamites to be basically the same people, so they depicted them the same in their art. Seti meets the leaders of this region. Above them, hieroglyphic texts describe the event. The text says, quote, The great ones, or chiefs of Lebanon, they say in praising the Lord of the two lands and magnifying his strength, You are seen like your father Ra. One lives because of seeing you. It's a classic text. The enemy is totally obedient and praising of the pharaoh. We can't read too much into it, but apparently the local rulers were loyal. At the very least, they were loyal enough that Seti did not feel the need to show a battle scene. So maybe this did happen. As the Egyptian army entered Lebanon, an embassy of local rulers may have come forth, perhaps to offer tribute and loyalty to the king. Between the two groups, the Lebanese and the pharaoh, one of Seti's representatives appears. An Egyptian official, wearing a long robe and carrying a fan, speaks to the king. This guy might be an interpreter, somebody who can speak the local dialect and translate it for Seti. The official says, quote, Words spoken by the fan-bearer who is on the right of the king, as a response to the younger god, Seti. The fan-bearer says, One acts in accordance with everything that you say. O Horus, who causes the two lands to live, you, Seti, are like Montu, the war god, over every land. When the chieftains of Retchenu, or Syria, behold you, the awe of you is in their bodies. End quote. So, Seti comes before the great ones of Lebanon. They are local leaders, not top-tier kings and vassals. These rulers, important in their own communities, remain loyal subjects of King Seti. And when they gaze upon the pharaoh, it is like gazing on the sun. You get the sense of Egyptian imperial splendour here. The king is a dazzling sun disk, shining over all foreign lands. Enemies and allies alike cannot help but look at him in amazement and awe. It's classic stuff, going right back into the 18th dynasty. Seti follows that tradition, and he shows it in his art. Loyalty and pageantry aside, why was Seti here? What did the chiefs of Lebanon have to offer? Well, once again, Seti tells us. Hieroglyphs above the king reveal his purpose. Apparently, Seti is, quote, inspecting the great ones of Lebanon as they cut down the pine trees for the great river barge called Amun Userhat. They also cut wood for the flagpoles of Amun. In other words, Seti came to this region for timber. He wanted to build a ship to sail upon the Nile. That ship was called Amun Userhat, meaning Amun, foremost of power. 
He also wanted to add flagpoles to the temples of Amun. Which temple exactly? He doesn't say. Maybe Karnak. Either way, Seti was in Lebanon for their primary export, cedar wood, timber, for carpentry and construction. This is a fun scene, especially with all the battles going on around it. And if you read the scene literally, it seems that Seti came to take the wood directly from the Lebanese forest. On the walls of Karnak, we find Seti standing before the great conifer trees. But while the king speaks with his representative, the Lebanese chiefs are cutting those trees. The great ones bring axes and ropes to fell the mighty pines. We see two of them hacking at the trunk, and another pair, just behind, are holding ropes. They have tied a rope around the tree, and as the woodcutters use their axes, these men use the ropes to guide the tree down. It's good safety practice, slowing the tree's descent as it crashes to the ground. So Seti shows us the act of gathering the wood. He doesn't just name the timber, he depicts the cutting and preparation. There's a reason for that. On the one hand, Seti is showing his deeds and recording them for glory. On the other hand, he is immortalizing the act in a religious sense. As the Lebanese chieftains cut down the trees, their work is preserved in the art. As a result, the great gods like Amun, lord of Karnak, can enjoy the benefits of that tree cutting forevermore. As long as the image endures, the trees are magically cut and prepared, so the great deities can enjoy Lebanese timber for their boats. Seti's art has a magical function. Seti came to Lebanon, apparently in peace. He did not rampage over the lands, laying waste to cities. Instead, the pharaoh and his representatives spoke directly to the chieftains. The Lebanese communities were loyal and submitted to Seti's authority. Accordingly, they enjoyed peace and dignity. All Seti asked for was timber. Wood cut from the great forests would go back to Egypt. There, it would decorate the houses of the gods, and a great ship that Seti wanted to build. So I guess Lebanon was kind of a shopping holiday for Seti I. An expedition to foreign lands to buy some luxury goods. The Lebanese forests were a far cry from Paris or Dubai, but if you were in the market for top quality wood, this was the place to go. Seti was living that jet-set life. He was the very lord of Lux. Having defeated Yanoam and gone shopping in Lebanon, Seti was ready. To do what? Why, Seti was ready to go north. The pharaoh was marching to a city called Kadesh. Kadesh is a famous site of the Bronze Age. Today, you'll find the city in modern-day Syria. The ruins of Kadesh are located at Tel al-Nabi Mando, a small village in the southern regions of the country. There isn't much to see today, but in antiquity, Kadesh was a mighty city-state. It formed a kingdom and exerted a powerful influence over its neighbours. Kadesh has a long history that I can't explore in too much detail here, but the short version goes like this. Kadesh, or Kidsha in Egyptian, was a fortified city near the river Orontes, 
It developed early in the prehistoric era, and over the centuries, its people built their community. By 1500 BCE, give or take, Kadesh had become a prosperous centre. It had a ruler, and the Kadeshi people, Kadeshians, started to develop a kingdom. Soon, they began to flex their muscle. One of the early references to Kadesh in the Egyptian sources comes from the pharaoh Thutmose III. That king, around 1480 BCE, had faced off against Kadesh in a regional conflict. Kadesh and its ruler had been involved in a rebellion when several Canaanite cities rejected Thutmose's rule. Naturally, Thutmose retaliated, and those events culminated in the Battle of Megiddo. The ruler of Kadesh was involved in Megiddo, and like his comrades, he was defeated by the might of Pharaoh's army. Following that battle, King Thutmose III subjugated Kadesh, making it part of the Egyptian empire. For the next hundred years, the situation seems to have persisted. Thutmose had subjugated the city, and its rulers paid tribute to Egypt. We don't know exactly how loyal the Kadeshians were, but for the next few decades, the city was officially part of Egypt's empire. Alas, that situation did not last. Eventually, Kadesh fell out of the Egyptian empire, or rather, it was taken. Around 1360 BCE, the Kadeshians got in trouble. They started a fight that they couldn't win. The king of Kadesh and his warriors tried to attack Hatti. Hatti, or the Hittites from the far north, were a rising power. They had expanded rapidly into Syria and northern Iraq, and during one of those campaigns, the great king of Hatti found himself battling with Kadesh. Supposedly, the Hittite ruler had planned to avoid Kadesh, since it was a servant of Egypt, but the king of Kadesh marched out against the Hittites. The two armies fought a battle. Sadly, the Kadeshians had picked a fight with a much stronger foe. The king of Kadesh and his entire family were captured, and soon the Hittites made Kadesh their vassal. For the next few decades, the lords of Kadesh acted in Hatti's interest. They served the great king and they obeyed his will. At this point, Kadesh came into conflict with Egypt. They started to attack their neighbours in Syria and Canaan. And allegedly, the king of Kadesh raided and burned cities, including cities that were subjects of the pharaoh. The Kadeshians were making a damn nuisance for the Egyptian imperials. As you can imagine, that demanded a response. Apparently, the 18th dynasty pharaohs Akhenaten and maybe Tutankhamun did send armies against Kadesh. But the city was stubborn, and it managed to resist those attacks. Maybe Kadesh was too strong, maybe it was too far away from Egypt. Either way, the situation is relatively clear. By 1300 BCE, the age of Seti I, Kadesh was well and truly removed from Pharaoh's friendship. Broadly speaking, that was the situation facing Seti. Kadesh had been a vassal, now it was an enemy, part of the greater Hittite empire. How would the Pharaoh deal with this problem? How do you think? Sometime during his reign, Seti marched into Syria. 
the king's army, including chariots and foot soldiers, went against Kadesh. The timing of this battle is unclear. It may have been early in his reign, it may have been later. I am willing to bet that it was earlier, maybe a year or two after his first campaign. I'm speculating, but Seti's first attack into Canaan kind of seems like a preparing the foundations operation. The king toured the region, affirming his control. And once that was done, he could move against the real enemies. Again, speculative. Scholars do not have a single consensus for these wars. But let's say that around 1300 BCE, a few years into his rule, Seti was strong enough to invade Syria. On the walls of Karnak, we find the battle itself. The art shows Seti in his chariot, battling the Kadeshians. It's a generic scene, the pharaoh triumphs, the enemy flees. But like the Yanoam scenes that we discussed earlier, these images are full of wonderful details. And they might give us an idea of what actually happened. To set the scene, we have Kadesh itself. The town appears on the right, Seti is on the left. Kadesh sits atop a hill, with a river or moat on one side, and a forest below. Apparently, the city was located in a fertile region, with good woodlands and pasture for animals. On the walls of Karnak, we find the Kadeshian army coming forth. The battle seems to take place in the open, maybe on a field near the city. The Kadeshians are distinct, they're not like the stereotypical Syrians of Lebanon and Yanoam. The Kadeshian troops wear long robes and beards, and they also have helmets with feathers or plumes attached. They carry rectangular shields, and some are armed with bows. The chariots have two soldiers each, and they should be a formidable opponent. Alas, this is an Egyptian battle scene, so the Kadeshians are not formidable. They crumble before the pharaoh. On the left, Seti is riding his war cart. His horses, two of them, charge headlong, four legs raised, hoofs ready to strike. The figure of Seti himself has disappeared, the blocks are lost, but based on other scenes, we can assume the king was standing tall in his chariot, raising his bow and arrow. He would wear a wig, or maybe the blue crown, and above, a vulture, Nechbet, and a sun disk, Ra, would hover overhead, protecting Seti as he fought. Again, the king's figure is gone, but we can guess what was there. Seti charges, and the enemy ranks break. Kadeshian warriors tumble about in confusion. Those charioteers I mentioned, they are not charging against Seti, they are charging away, fleeing before the might of Pharaoh's onslaught. Seti's arrows fly, and pierce many soldiers. The Kadeshians tumble and fall as they run. It is classic stuff. Seti appears as the embodiment of pharaonic victory. As the Kadeshian army crumbles, the city itself comes under threat. We see people standing on the walls of Kadesh. This time they are soldiers, but like the field army, they are incapable of resisting Egypt. The wall troops raise their hands in fear. Some are pierced with arrows as Seti fires into the city. On the right, one soldier collapses over the battlements falling dramatically to his death. The imagery of Seti's battle at Kadesh follows the same layout and structure of all of his war reliefs. But like the other scenes, Seti's artists do add small flourishes and features to liven up the affair. 
one detail that I absolutely love appears in the bottom right of this scene. Just below Kadesh, we find a forest growing at the base of the hill. And amid the trees, we can see cattle. A group of cows are fleeing from the battle, and just behind them, the cow herder also runs. He wears a helmet and a quiver, so he seems to be a warrior doubling as a cattleman, but like the army, he flees, driving his cattle to safety. As he runs, the cowherd looks back, raising a hand to beg for Seti's mercy. It is a great little feature that adds character to the scene. Another aspect that's worth mentioning is the colour. Today, the wall seems to be colourless, but in tiny traces, scholars have identified the original painting. There's not a lot, the wind and rain have done their work, but thanks to the epigraphic survey from the University of Chicago, we can imagine the colours. Apparently the city of Kadesh was painted yellow, and the hillside that it stood upon was red. That probably conveys the dry desert soil. The Kadeshi warriors had helmets painted red, their shields were blue, their arrow quivers were green. Seti's arrows, which pierced the Kadeshians, were yellow, with blue heads and red fletching. The king's horses were red, as were the Kadeshi animals and the entire scene had a border of green. We also get colour on the Kadeshi clothes. One soldier, collapsing against the hill, is wearing a multi-coloured coat. His robe is divided between blue on the right and yellow on the left. He has a yellow undershirt and a green skirt or kilt. Another soldier is wearing a red shirt with a yellow undershirt and a green skirt or kilt. The sleeves of his shirt have blue stripes. It's not a lot, just a few details, but we can get an idea. Originally, the battle scene was brightly coloured, and the enemy had a vibrant mix of clothing. Much livelier than the stone you see today. I haven't been able to find a reconstruction of this particular scene, but by a wonderful coincidence, I did recently see a version of Seti's first campaign. An exhibition that just opened in New Zealand presented a digital reconstruction of Seti's attack on the Shasu. This reconstruction has all of the colours that scholars have identified. I will put an image of that scene on my website for those who wish to see it. That might give an idea of the Kadeshi battle. So, we have a large wall carving, Seti I charging against Kadesh. It has great details, and it tells the basic story. But as always, we are left with the question, how much of this is genuine? Did Seti really conquer Kadesh? Did he bring it back into the empire? Surprisingly, the answer seems to be yes. Archaeologists exploring Kadesh itself have found traces of King Seti I. In 1921, an excavation at Tel Nabi Mandu found a stela. The stela is made of basalt, a hard volcanic rock, and it shows Seti I before the gods. The pharaoh makes offerings to four deities. These are Amun-Ra, lord of the sky, Seth, great of strength, Montu, lord of Waset, or Thebes, and Hathor, lady of Byblos. That's an interesting selection. Amun-Ra makes sense, he is the king of all gods. Montu and Seth, meanwhile, are war deities, 
and Seth himself was the patron of King Seti, whose name means belonging to Seth. As for Hathor, well, she has long been associated with Canaan, Lebanon, and the northern lands. The Egyptians honoured Hathor as a lady of foreign worlds, so it makes sense that she has authority in this region. Basically, the stela shows the gods who helped Seti to rule, helped him to conquer, and who ruled over Canaan and Syria. These were good beings to have on your side. The stela comes from Tel Nabi Mandu, aka Kadesh. Unfortunately, most of the stela is lost. The surviving piece shows Seti before the gods. But that's just the top of the stela. The bottom section, where Seti would record his names and deeds, that is gone. Which is a shame. Chances are, the original text explained Seti's campaign, and it probably included the date of these events. Alas, that information has disappeared. Nevertheless, we can learn something. The mere existence of this stela, and its discovery at Kadesh itself, suggests that yes, Seti did conquer the city. Logically, Seti could not erect a stela in a place that he did not control. And bringing the stela, decorating it, and raising it, would have taken time. We don't know how long Seti controlled Kadesh, but apparently, his attack was a victory. At least, temporarily. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Sometime around 1300 BCE, give or take, the pharaoh Seti, Men Ma'at Ra, led his army into Syria. The king's chariots, foot soldiers, and archers attacked the great city of Kadesh. Kadesh, or Kidshah, was a regional power. Once, it had been a vassal of Egypt. Then, it served the Hittites. But the pharaohs never forgot about Kadesh. Just a few decades earlier, kings like Akhenaten and Tutankhamun had sent armies against the city. Alas, they failed to capture Kadesh, or to humble its rulers. Then, King Seti came along, and his army was victorious. We may wonder, why did Seti succeed where the earlier kings had failed? Was he more talented? Were his troops better? Or was it something larger? There are several possible reasons why Seti may have been more effective than his predecessors. The first explanation is presence. According to the records, Akhenaten and Tutankhamun had sent their armies to Syria, but they hadn't come in person. By comparison, it seems like Seti may have led his wars himself. That could have been more effective. Pharaoh's presence on the battlefield might result in a more cohesive strategy, better morale among the soldiers, or even just a larger army in general. The king needed more protection than a random general, 
so maybe Seti just brought more troops than his predecessors had sent. Those are some basic possible explanations. Another answer could be the environment, specifically the Egyptian environment and the Hittite one. I'll start with Egypt. Back in the days of Akhenaten and Tutankhamun, Egypt's economy and their military may have been temporarily weakened. You see, various sources indicate that around that time, Egypt was experiencing a plague. An epidemic of unknown proportions swept through the Nile Valley. Such a plague might have been disastrous for Egypt's military strength. If the soldiers were sick, they probably weren't as effective in battle. And at home, villages and towns may have suffered reductions in the population. That would have a knock-on effect on military recruitment, fewer troops available. It would also affect supplies. With fewer hands to harvest the fields, there were less goods to deliver to the army. So a plague or epidemic could have crippled Egypt's military power. A couple decades later, though, Seti might have inherited a more stable situation. If the plague had subsided during the reign of Horemheb, the villages and economy may have bounced back. After all, it was approximately 30 years between the death of Tutankhamun and the ascent of Seti I. That should be enough time to recover. From that perspective, maybe we have an explanation for Seti's victories. By this point, Egypt's armed forces may have been more numerous, better equipped, and more effective than the previous generation. That is a tentative explanation. At the same time, Seti might have benefited from Hittite weakness. That plague that I just mentioned, it did not stay in Egypt. The epidemic spread through Canaan and Syria all the way to the Hittite kingdom. The Hittites suffered their own plague, and many of their people died. We hear about this in Hittite texts, and the kings of Hatti even commissioned prayers begging relief and protection from the gods. We don't know how long the plague lasted, but it sounds like the effect was devastating. Again, harvests may have shrunk, as there were fewer people to till the fields. Recruitment may have been harder, with fewer soldiers to gather. And supply, morale, and effectiveness may have taken a general hit. The Hittites were still active during this period, we have plenty of records for them going out, but maybe, just maybe, the plague weakened Hatti and its army, and in that gap, an attack on Kadesh might be more successful. That explanation is pure speculation. We know the plague happened, but we don't know the full impact or duration. At the very least, we can wonder, did Akhenaten and Tutankhamun fail to recapture Kadesh because Egypt was suffering? And did Seti succeed because Egypt had recovered? Another explanation could be the political environment. Back in the days of Horemheb, Tutankhamun, and Akhenaten, the Hittite Empire had enjoyed a seriously strong position. Its great king, Supaluliuma, was an effective leader and conqueror. So the earlier pharaohs may have simply failed to overcome a strong, well-resourced opponent. By the time of King Seti, though, the Hittites were in a different position. Supaluliuma was long dead, and his successors had faced a series of crises and catastrophes. One after another, the heirs of Supaluliuma had to deal with civil war, rebellion, 
plague, and invasion on their borders. Perhaps by the time Seti came to power, the Hittites were too busy dealing with their own problems. That might have left an opportunity for an attack on Kadesh. Again, all of this is speculation on my part, but it could be an answer to that simple but complicated question. Why did the 18th dynasty rulers fail to retake Kadesh, but Seti I succeeded? We'll probably never know it for sure, and you can chalk it up to effective leadership by Seti, a stronger political and military situation for the Egyptians, or a temporary collapse in Hittite strength. All of these are possible. The point is, the Egyptians were back. Kadesh and its neighbours were retaken. So, around 1300 BCE, give or take, Seti I, Men Ma'at Ra, captured Kadesh. After decades in the Hittite system, the great city and kingdom was under Egyptian authority once more. The pharaoh had done what his recent predecessors had failed to achieve. He and his army could erect a stela, recording their victory in the city itself. Of course, Seti's achievement was noteworthy. But that wasn't the end of the story. Kadesh was a valuable place, and its former overlords, the Hittites, were going to want it back. If Seti wanted to keep Kadesh, he was going to have to fight. But that is a story for the future. Next time, Seti's wars continue. The king of Egypt and his army have retaken Kadesh, but they haven't won. Not yet. The Hittites are coming. Seti will face them in battle. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Egypt podcast. Special thanks to Linda, Yola, Terry, Mykost, TJ, Andy and Chelsea, Stephen, Kyla, Niden, Evan, Martha, Paul, Ashley, and Veronica. These fine folks are the priests. They support my Patreon at the highest possible tier. Folks, you are all too generous, and I am in your debt. I can't send you cedar wood. New Zealand has unbelievably strict bio-quarantine rules. But I can send you a story. A story of the pharaoh in distant lands. Of Seti I wandering among the forests. And of great battles at the edge of empires. To the priests, thank you so much for your support. And to all my patrons, you are most generous. And I cannot do this without you. And now, a brief epilogue. Around 1300 BCE, King Seti I launched a campaign into Syria. The pharaoh and his army attacked the city of Kadesh, and apparently they captured it. Surprisingly, Seti's battle for Kadesh does appear in film. In 2014, director Ridley Scott's film Exodus, Gods and Kings features a battle at Kadesh. 
This fight does not include Seti. The battle is led by his son, Rameses, and his brother, Moses. But in the film, the Egyptian army leads an attack on a camp near the city of Kadesh. Technically, I suspect the filmmakers were doing THE Battle of Kadesh, the one that Ramesses II fought early in his reign. But chronologically, that doesn't add up. This battle clearly takes place in the reign of Seti. At the start of the scene, we find Ramesses and Moses surveying the enemy camp. They divide up their battalions, Ra, Amun, Seth, etc., and they plan their assault on the enemy forces. The battle itself begins with a full Egyptian charge. Somehow, the enemy do not have any guards or scouts protecting their perimeter, and the Egyptian army surges onto the battlefield in glittering array. The charge is pure Lawrence of Arabia-style pageantry. As the enemy gathers their foot soldiers into a hasty line, the Egyptian chariots ride headlong into the spears. That's not quite how chariots worked in antiquity. The chariot was a sports car, not a tank. Its most effective use was mobility, skirting around the enemy while an archer loosed arrows. So the film gets the chariot aspect wrong. But on a big enough screen, it is certainly impressive. As the fight progresses, the Egyptians are on foot. At this point, the melee devolves into a standard movie battle. Individual soldiers square off, wrestling and dueling to the death. There are no formations, no attempt at cohesion. The fight is just chaos. It's a damn shame, because there was an opportunity to show the Kadeshians marching against Egypt. There could have been a proper infantry brawl. Alas, that was the age of shaky camera work and haphazard choreography for battles. You get the sense that director Ridley Scott wasn't particularly invested in the scene. Exodus, Gods and Kings is not a great film. In fact, it's downright bad in many respects. But the attack on Kadesh might give a very loose, basic idea of Seti's assault on the region. Is it accurate? Not at all. Is it fun? Yeah, it's not bad. The point is, the film technically includes a depiction of Seti's campaign. The details are fudged, but it's there. And the scene is on YouTube, for those who are interested. Anyway, that's all from me. Thank you for listening, and I will see you very soon. On the next episode, the Hittites counterattack. Seti must face them. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.